the Askell Leadership Podcast. Welcome to the Trust Askell Podcast. My name is Rob Robson and I am the Trust Leadership Consultant for Askell. For this edition, I'm joined by Julian Drinkle, who is the CEO of the Academy's Enterprise Trust, or AET, as it's commonly known. We've decided to break this podcast into two parts as we recorded a lot of really interesting material and it seemed a shame to cut it down to our usual length. Julian leads the largest trust in England and his LinkedIn profile describes him as a proven leader with an international track record, both at CEO and board level, which when you listen to the podcast, I think you'll see is exactly right. Julian's understanding of businesses in both the education and media sectors has given him an unusual background for somebody who is the CEO of the largest multi-academy trust. But as you'll hear, Julian has led AET through a difficult time as it's emerged into a new era of resurgence and success. And he talks candidly about the challenges he and his team have faced and the approach he's taken. Welcome, Julian. Welcome to the Trust Askell podcast. Delighted to have you here today. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about your journey to being where you are at the moment, which is CEO, and just a little bit about why you ended up in education, because you didn't start in that background, did you? No, Rob, you're absolutely right. I I didn't start in education, and it's been a rather fabulous journey to get to education. I've enjoyed the serendipity of it. I've enjoyed the gradual nature of getting more and more deeply involved in education. I mean, in terms of recent history, I've been CEO of AET now for a little over four years. Prior to that, I was CEO of the Alpha Plus Group, which is the largest group of independent schools in, in, in London, the second largest independent school group in the UK, with about 20 schools, of which a large number have international students. But to, to your question about how did I get to education, most of my early career was much more involved in media businesses. So I worked for Chris Blackwell of Island Records fame. I worked for the BBC. I ran the BBC's investment committee. I've worked in magazines and magazine publishing to IPC Media and AOL Time Warner. And then my entry route really into education has been as a CEO of large international publishing companies. So I was chief operating officer of Macmillan Publishers and while there was asked to bring together all of Macmillan's international education businesses, which are in around 100 countries around the world, primary and secondary, higher education, English language teaching. And that was a simply wonderful job. I found that the world of education in all its glorious international diversity to be absolutely fascinating. And I took on another role with an organization called Sengage, which is the old Thomson Reuters education business. A lot of work in digital archives. We digitized the entirety of the Arabic collection at the British Library, turned that into an enormous scholarly archive. We digitized pretty well the entirety of the British broadsheet newspaper press, again, as sort of reference material for scholarly libraries, university libraries around the world. So I did an awful lot in, in ed tech. I'm 
chair of uh, Dragon's Teaching, which is a Mandarin education company. And I have a couple of non-executive roles in that space as well. But the long and the short of it was, people were saying to me, Julian, you've done so much work in education internationally. You've done work in publishing. You've done work in digital archives. You've done ed tech work. Why don't you stop selling to us? And why don't you actually help us to run educational establishments and institutions? And for me, that was just... That was such a lovely, warm welcome. And it actually resonated with me. It was exactly where I wanted to go. I'd spent so much time thinking, how does one serve the education community with all sorts of new bits of innovation uh, and excitement? And so to be asked to actually sort of help run educational organizations, that was a wonderful epiphany moment for me. And I guess I've, I've never looked back. It's fascinating to hear about the roles that you had before coming into education, Julian. In those roles, there must have been people from whom you learnt your leadership style, your way of approaching leadership. So who influenced you in particular? Early on in my career, I made a point of, of trying to make myself helpful and available to leaders who were facing really quite big challenges. And I very unashamedly have been um, a follower, a bag carrier, a chief of staff, a you know facilitator, a fix-it person. But I think it's terribly important when one's working for other people to look at what it is that they do, why they do it, when they've been successful and when not. And, and I've had some unbelievable leaders early on in my career when I left having done my postgraduate work. You know, I worked for an incredible man, Chris Blackwell, who was the founder and CEO of Island Records. And I was a young man at that point, probably very impatient. But Chris taught me the, the importance of, of patience, the fact that time is, is finite and sometimes one needs to act very quickly and very decisively. But at other times, patience, creating options, listening for a little bit longer, working out when you need to act and when's better to sort of stay, sit aside. And then I've worked for a number of people in, in situations where major changes have been needed. I've had a couple of um, fantastic female bosses who I would like to sort of pay tribute to. When I was working at Macmillan Education, um, I worked for a fantastic um, CEO, Annette Thomas, who was running the Macmillan Publishers um, Organization, an African-American woman, an extraordinary scientist who'd led the Nature Journal and the Nature brand and franchise. Other amazing people, you know, working at the BBC at a time of huge digital transformation when the BBC was absolutely revising all of its services, when things like interactive television, the iPlayer were all being invented and the internet was taking off. And I got to work for a you know fantastic uh, gentleman, John Smith, who was chief operating officer, Carolyn Fairburn, who most recently is, has been director general of the CBI. And I just think whenever one is in these situations to look at other people, to support them, to genuinely try and work out when they're struggling, when they need help and how you can be helpful to them you will see the best of those people. You'll see them at their high points and you'll see them at their low points. And I just think there's no better way than observing at first hand 
how other leaders operate and respond to, to, to situations. And if you can do that in the here and the now and try to understand the leader rather than, than criticize the leader, rather than sort of saying, I'm you know, emotionally bought in or I'm dissatisfied, think about how you can help that leader and what the point of, of assistance is rather than judging and saying you like or you don't like. Too often, I think we do the sort of approval, disapproval bit. And it's one of the reasons why I think we get it wrong with politicians. We're so often in hock. We expect them to come up with the solution. We overly love them when they say something we like. We overly despise them when they say something we dis dislike. The real nature of all of this is to understand what's been done well and what hasn't been done well, and to develop one's own skills so that you know, when one's functioning in a team, whether you're the leader or you're part of the support network, that we're all doing absolutely the best we can. And from a position of reality, rather than some kind of some kind of dream. That is, however, a very different <laughs> route into the, the role that you're in at the moment, the most uh, trust CEOs. So why did you end up in the state sector? Well, I think a number of answers to that. One of the things that I have found really fascinating about education, you know, by most measures, it's the third largest sector of human endeavor in the world in terms of, you know, as an employer, in terms of sort of uh, GDP spend, you know, education is right um, up there. And I think it's probably the most disaggregated of human endeavor. You talk about business and industry and sectors and there's scale involved in those things quite often globalization and internationalization has has taken place and so a degree of homogenization I think has happened in, in, in a lot of human activity and education for me I love its diversity I love the fact that there is no you know there's no single silver bullet there are different educational needs for different types of people in different parts of the world it's that that I've loved, is, is the diversity of it. And there isn't one model. And I, you know, I believe that education has to always be versatile, changing, adapting. It needs to be eclectic. And so when you say to me why a state school model, I started off with, with private schools, but international students. I was typically recruiting students from various parts of Africa, the Middle East, Central, Southern Asia, China, Latin America. But the attraction, particularly with AET, was that it was the largest multi-academy trust in the country. It had as part of its mantra, while it had all sorts of problems, it had part of its mantra, inclusivity, the desire to try and help every child, whatever their background and their disadvantage. And the, the love of AET is very much that diversity. So at AET, we don't have one model of school improvement. We don't have one way of doing things. We can be very subtle and we can be very nuanced. And for me, that level of sort of innovation and creativity and diversity is the hallmark of it. There are no big groups of schools in the world. There are beginning to become ones, I think, as people learn how to do school improvement, how to do technology. But it's terribly fragmented. There are no huge corporate entities in education. I suppose the most valuable education brand in the world is probably Harvard University with its mega endowment of the best part of 50 billion pounds. 
But, you know, even a company like Pearson that people consider to be very, very large, you know, that's a 10 billion pound company in a global education sector that runs to more like five trillion pounds. And so it's that, it's that diversity that I think is incredibly, incredibly exciting. So you arrived at AET with an interest in the diversity, an interest in the, some of the issues that the trust was facing as well. What approach did you take? What philosophy did you adopt when you got to AET in terms of running it? I think organisations require very different leadership styles at, at different moments in their in their history and I think I've had the opportunity to exercise a variety of different leadership styles when I joined AET it was in really quite a state the critics of AET were numerous the finances were in diabolical shape. It had many years of, of deficits, year-on-year year deficits, and was under a financial notice to improve. You know, it was probably very close to being insolvent. The educational results in terms of traditional measures, scores on the doors, in terms of attainment and, and progress and um, Ofsted ratings were, were not in good shape. Governance wasn't working particularly well. But I think leadership in a turnaround situation is very, very different to leadership after a turnaround has happened. And I think one of the things that I was passionate about at AT when I started was this diversity, was this inclusivity. And I always had that in my mind as being the thing that I wanted to sort of latch onto and I wanted to serve that particular cause. But, but when I arrived at AT, you know, things weren't in good shape. I made it very clear to people that we were in a very parlous state. We were in a sort of crisis. You know, the building was on fire um, and we did need to sort things out, uh, you know, extremely rapidly. And that's not the time to be talking too much about sort of vision and mission and values. You know, when things are falling around you, you do need to concentrate on what's really needed. So I, I tried to make it clear to people. I got out and I met a lot of people really early on. I did want to try and have some personal and emotional connection with everyone that was around. I was looking for new talent. I was trying to work out who in the organization was great, but maybe hadn't been you know, surfaced within the organization. And I also had to work out the weaknesses as well. But in that turnaround mode, we had to move incredibly quickly. So, you know, 80-20 was the sort of rule of our sort of mantra in those early days. We had to do an awful lot of restructuring and reorganizing people who needed to leave the organization because they weren't the right particular people at that particular moment in time. Restructuring because these deficits were huge and we were, you know, heading towards insolvency. So that early period was about being pretty decisive and probably making an awful lot of mistakes along the way, simply because we had to shore up the organization and, and make sure that it, it could develop a platform from which we could be much, much more thoughtful, much more nuanced and much more expansive. So as I say, I think there's a big difference between leadership in a crisis and leadership in a period of reasonable stability. But I think what is common to both of those is you do need to build trust really early on and so even when we were in that crisis mode and we were you know fighting for survival in many respects we did do a, a number of things so I tried to involve lots of people in the process 
of reviewing how we were doing with each of those individual schools. We very quickly tried to build a culture of not blaming people, not pointing the finger at people. There were lots of things that were going wrong, but it wasn't going to help us to cast aspersions and blame and vilify people. And we very early on wanted to go for what we called a single version of the truth. Let's have open, candid conversations. Let's bring all the data and all the concerns to the table. Let's be frank and open about what's going on. But let's also agree on a common interpretation of the facts, because then we can agree on a common course of action where we can all help each other. I think one of the things I noticed when I came into AET was that there were so many contradictory voices, not in the positive sense of diversity, where you're eliciting a variety of opinions and views and picking through those, but downright sort of dissonance, disagreement, anger, fear, and where we really needed to get to a sort of common point of action, where everyone felt that they could contribute to solving the problems rather than sort of relying on a few individuals and then rounding on them, you know, when it wasn't going so well. So whether you're in crisis mode or you're building an organization or transforming it into something different, I I think to get that sense of uh, engagement and trust is really crucial. I've heard you speak before about the analogy of the party, whether you're on the dance floor or up on the balcony. So it sounds as if those early days were very much about being on the dance floor. At what point is the right point to get up on the balcony then? Well, I'm a big believer that you've got to be thinking a little bit about both of those at the same time. The emphasis will differ. And, you know, for sure, um, the analogy, by the way, for those who maybe, you know, haven't heard it so much is it is the, it's the analogy of um, hosting a party. And if you're going to make a party really hum and really work, you need your guests to be enjoying themselves. And that requires you to be serving drinks and food. That requires you to be on the dance floor. That means that you need to be involved in the conversations. But you also need to get up onto the balcony and look around and see how all the guests are are reacting, you know, looking out for those who maybe are enjoying themselves more or less. And so having that ability to be, you know, right in the middle of the nitty gritty and the detail, but that ability to step back and take a sort of sensible perspective is really important. But you're right, in that crisis moment, Rob, we set up a program called the Key Academies of Concern. These were those academies that we were particularly worried about and very, very hands-on, you know, looking at all the data, working very closely with everyone. But being up on the balcony, and trying to anticipate what's going to happen in the future and what will make a difference uh, was really important. So that first six months for me, Rob, in many ways was quite lonely because I was having to work very hard with a small group of people, the best that I could manage. But crucially, what I needed to do in terms of being on the balcony was building an entirely new team. You know, I had to let go, purely for financial reasons, 40% of the school support services team at the centre We ended up changing pretty well all of the trustees, um, bar two. We, in terms of my senior management team, only one from that original management team is still with us today. But we built a, a new executive team of around 10 different people. And we changed all the governors at all what was then 64 of our schools. So being on the balcony was thinking about the skill sets 
that were really needed, um, the types of personality that could help build an entirely new vision, culture and ethos, but also, you know, very specifically the, the skill sets, the technical skill sets that are needed to make school improvement work. So my advice always to people on this, and I try to with myself, is always say, what's the work you're doing on the balcony? What's the work you're doing on the dance floor? Are you doing enough in each of those two things? And do you need to shift the balance? Just going back to something that you said a few minutes ago about not pointing fingers at individuals, or at least not heaping blame onto individuals. How do you then get rid of the myth and the dogma that can come your way if you've got an organisation where trust hasn't been established? Well, I think you need a few, you know, victories under your belt. I think that that trust and engagement comes from demonstrable results. And early on, you just need to set yourself a few of those targets. And I think the experience of a team coming together, working together, experiencing the roller coaster, you know, ups and downs of trying to do a turnaround. But as you start to have some victories along the way, then I think things start to fall neatly into place. I think the victories and the wins is, is important. How do you communicate those? How do you tell people it's a win? Well, I think that's part of the getting to sort of one version of the truth. I think part of getting to one version of the truth is defining what's needed. Now, Rob, in the case of, you know, these key academies of concern that I was telling you about, the wins and the victories were very, very different in each of these schools. And back to my thing of, you know, it's not one size fits all. It's not a single silver bullet. It's not a top-down prescriptive model. It's about going through that process with colleagues to decide what matters and, and what is important. And we didn't come in with a sort of pre-imagined game plan for all of these schools where we were going to put them through some kind of sausage machine of school improvement with exactly the same dogma. We were looking at each of these schools. We looked at them in a very holistic sense. You know, very often school improvement might look at very specific aspects of sort of educational results. But we were looking at things like admissions preferences, um, enrollment trends. So were these schools popular? We were looking at the strength of the governance teams. Was there um, a governance structure in place that would allow management to do their part? It might be that uh, in some cases it would be Ofsted problems. Um, in other cases, it would be related maybe to particular subjects. Sometimes it was to do with the basic infrastructure and fabric of the school. But I think what we were doing as a team, we're always looking at what's the binding constraint, looking at that particular school at that moment in time. Let's not try and solve for all the problems. You know, we do our heads in trying to tick all hundred boxes as to what represents a great school. But let's ask ourselves, what are the two or three things that really matter most? What are the two or three things that will have the biggest impact, that will create a domino effect, that will create a virtuous circle of improvement. And I think because we were defining those binding constraints together, we were defining what constituted success. We were all vested in therefore putting our shoulders to the wheel to make sure that we were dealing with those things. And I think the best teams, they instinctively know when they're working well. Yes, of course, 
you need to have, you know, performance indicators. And yes, of course, you'll score things and evaluate things. But I, I think if everyone has worked together in the diagnosis, everyone has worked together in the solving, and one is very honest about measuring what it was, what was that one was trying to achieve and what one's actually achieved, I think it becomes very self-evident to everyone on that team that you're making progress and then the confidence begins to build and you start taking on newer challenges and bigger challenges. Talking about teams is where we leave things at the end of the first podcast and we'll pick up that theme in the second part of this podcast. So thank you for listening today and I do hope you'll join us again when I'll continue the conversation with Julian. The Askold Leadership Podcast. 